0: Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll talk to Tracy lewis Stokol, host of Finding Your Best Self podcast about her life-changing divorce. Also on the show today, I'll answer a listener question about the illusion of closure, and I'm calling out all of the friends, family, and coworkers who intellectualize your grief. Do you intellectualize your own grief? Let's find out. I'm Shelby for Cynthia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief. And I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thanks for tuning in today. Just a friendly reminder that our second Fun One episode, episode 20, is coming up soon on September 27th. So, if you're a new listener, every 10th episode we will do something fun in relation to pop culture. So, for episode 20, we're going to be talking about. The Five Love Languages, the book by Gary Chapman. We'll be talking about grief's connection to the five love languages, which if you don't know, are gifts, words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, and quality time. Where have you seen healing from grief connected to some or all of these love languages? Where have you seen grief as a result of a lack of some or all of these love languages? Call or write in with your thoughts by September 20th. 312-725-3043 or shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And if you're not sure which love language speaks to you, try googling the five love languages quiz and you'll see it pop up online. Can't wait to hear from you. If you're a business owner or you've suffered a major business loss like losing money or dealing with difficult clients, having to hire and fire or being hired and fired... I would highly recommend that you check out my interview with Holly Warden over on the Business Mindset podcast. I am so thrilled to announce to you that this exists because it's my very first interview on somebody else's podcast. And it's all about grief in business, which is something a lot of people don't talk about. A lot of people try to separate the business from the emotional. And a lot of times that's just not possible. If you're a longtime listener, you know Holly's story from episode nine of Coming Back. We talked about abuse, divorce, and yes, her business loss. On her show, I gave some concrete tips for dealing with major losses in business. We talked about my darkest episode yet, which is episode 11 of Coming Back. And we talked about how I was actually called into business in the first place as an intuitive grief guide after my mom died in 2013. You can find a link to the episode we shared together in the show notes, or you can just search business, mindset, podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The episode I did with Holly is episode 214, which aired last week. It's such a great little half hour episode. If you're looking to pull some grief wisdom into your business world, or if you just want to know more about how I got started as an intuitive grief guide, I would so love if you listened. Today, my grief growers... I want to talk to you about the concept of intellectualizing grief. Intellectualizing grief is something that happens when people tell you things that are obvious or true about your loss with the intent to make you feel better, but they don't make you feel any better. This has been coming up for me so much that I actually wrote an article about it on my blog called Stop Telling Me I Dodged a Bullet. And the backstory of it is this. So, Many of you know, especially if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, that my fiance and I broke up in May of this year. It was and is still a really heartbreaking loss event for me. And the communications that I've had with people in the wake of this loss haven't always gone in the direction that I expected. So I've gotten a lot of comments like, well, at least you didn't sign any paperwork and actually get married. Or she's crazy. Be glad you're not in that anymore. And my favorite Wow, you dodged a bullet. Which is where the title of the blog post comes from. But here's the thing. These comments, while truthful or containing some element of truth, they just aren't helpful to my heart. They're not. I still feel crappy after people say them to my face, despite the best intentions of my friends and my family and my coworkers to make me feel better. I know, intellectually, that our relationship wasn't for the best, that I've got a pretty good life going, and I'm emotionally and financially better off that she and I didn't actually sign a marriage contract together. I know all these things to be true. But intellectual statements like this, and so many other statements that are said to grievers, are what the Grief Recovery Institute calls intellectually true, emotionally not helpful. These are comments that society has worked out to mean or to intend, if I say this, then you can't be sad anymore. If this is true about your situation, why are you upset? If the facts that I'm saying to you are real, you shouldn't be grieving. Society thinks that intellectualizing grief, turning my ex into a crazy person, telling people that their mom didn't suffer at the end, Reminding people that there are other fish in the sea, reassuring people that they can try again for kids, pointing out that people have other pets to love. Society thinks that statements like this somehow change the fact that your heart is broken. That these facts somehow make up for the fact that you've lost something. This is called intellectualizing your grief. This is trying to make grief, which is an emotional entity, fit into a logical box, but grief doesn't go there. It just doesn't work there. And that's why you don't feel any better when your friends say it, or when your family says it, or when your coworkers say it, when perfect strangers say it, even when you try and say these things to yourself, to comfort yourself. It doesn't matter who's saying these intellectual truths to you. While the hospital did the best they could, you know he'll always love you. We can start looking for a new job tomorrow. It's only money. You can always go back to Visit. It doesn't matter who's saying these truths to you guys. They're not making you feel any better because they can't. They don't have that capacity. Logic doesn't make people feel better when they're grieving. Intellectualizing grief, pointing out the facts and the truths of the situation, it doesn't change the fact that your heart is broken. You know what does help a broken heart and it's what we always come back to on coming back. It's being there. It's being present with people. It's asking questions of an emotional nature. Maybe I've never quite said it this way on the show, but we're not interrogating people. We're not trying to be logical or factual with people. We're not even trying to make them feel better when we're talking about grief with them. So instead of pointing out information that grievers already know to be true, like, wow, you dodged a bullet. Yes, I know. Say things like, how are you today? I know that this is still what's happening in your life. Do you want to talk about it? I just heard what happened. I am so sorry. And as one commenter on my blog said, in the case of a breakup, are things making any more sense to you today? Ask and talk about the state of their hearts, guys. Don't pair logic with emotion and expect them to heal magically. Pair emotion with emotion and expect to open the door to connect. That's all you have to do. That's all you really can do do. So quit telling me he's in a better place, that I'm better off, that I didn't marry her, that I can always look for another job or go back to school or adopt instead, or give extra love to my remaining pets or family members. I know all of those things. Just ask me how I'm doing with my loss today. And if you're a griever facing someone who's intellectualizing your grief, try letting them know. Say, yes, I know that's true, but my heart is still broken. Say, I know that and it's not helpful to me. I'd feel better if you ask how I'm doing with it today. And my personal favorite, yes, but that doesn't change the fact that it still hurts. Just coming back with something that shifts the person you're talking to into an emotional mode can really change the direction of the conversation. It's not your responsibility, but sometimes you have to advocate for your own grief in that way. And we are breaking down societal myths about grief one episode at a time here, my dear grief growers. This week, I wish you all the strength to speak your truth. The knowledge that you're not crazy because facts don't fix your heart. Of course they don't. And as always, all of my love, and support. If you're looking to read more about intellectualizing your grief, you can check out Stop Telling Me I Dodged a Bullet over on my blog at ShelbyForsythia.com. You can also find a direct link to the blog in the show notes. Next up, I'll answer a listener question about the illusion of closure. Dear Shelby, When will I find closure from my loss? My friends, my family, and even my boyfriend keep telling me I need to find or get some closure with my grief, but I don't know how. Heartbroken forever. You don't say how long ago your loss occurred, or what it was, heartbroken. But I'm going to tell you for all intents and purposes for this question, it doesn't matter. I'm going to deliver some hard truths to you right now. Closure doesn't exist. And grief doesn't end. There's no such thing as closure. And grief doesn't end. There's this illusion that we have and that we perpetuate in society, unfortunately, through movies and music and TV and tabloids that we can get over our losses or move on from them or find closure that sticks or is lasting. There's this illusion that says when you've achieved happily ever after, you don't think about or worry about or regret anything that's happened in your life that was negative. Finding closure is like this elusive goal that everybody talks about, but nobody knows how to get it promises to totally change your life and bring you peace, but nobody can tell you how to go about doing it. So I'll save you a lot of time and tell you right here and right now that closure is an illusion. Grief doesn't end. But what grief does over time is changes form. Grief usually has this pronounced heavy onset at the beginning where our lives look totally different and our emotions are all over the place. And there's this feeling that the pain will never end. But with the passing of time and with your own participation in your coming back and with the support of others, you learn to incorporate your grief and your heartbreak into your life. It may become smaller as you go on, or it may become confined to like a couple of special days per year. It could start to express itself through art or speaking or a new career pursuit. Listening to the interviews on this show, you'll hear that grief speaks to all of us and follows each of us through our lives in different ways. Because what grief does is it comes in and it totally changes our lives. But then it continues to change them until we die. But finding closure, this concept of finding closure, literally closing the book on a chapter of your life, that's just not possible. Unless your memory is totally wiped or lost, or you die, you will carry memories of your grief and of the people and the places and the things that you lost throughout your entire lifetime. You can take the actions, you can burn the old photos or finally file a lawsuit against somebody or write them a letter or bury their ashes or move out of the old house, but closure with your memories, it just doesn't happen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry because sometimes I wish that I could find closure in my own grief too. I wish it was real, but it just doesn't exist. All of that being said, all of that being said, there are things that you can do to lessen the pain and the sting of your grief. You can take some of the bite out of it there. The first thing I'll recommend, and I recommended this to another caller as well, is to get out there and find someone to work through your grief with. My personal favorite is the Grief Recovery Methods, Grief Recovery Specialists. Their program is a short-term 8-12 to week stint that walks you through your loss and gives you these concrete tools to deal with future losses. And you can find a specialist in your area at griefrecoverymethod.com. Click support groups when you get there. If you're in Chicago, I would be so happy to work with you. If for some reason there's not a support specialist in your area, I would ask friends and family that you trust, not the ones nagging you to find closure. If they know of a good therapist or counseling center in your area, or even if they're going to a group or a therapist themselves, just having ears and a heart that's focused on your pain and your story can do wonders for that feeling of pain not ending. All that being said, I would encourage you to join a group that's ongoing as well. This can be something like my private Facebook group, which is called the Grief Growers Garden, Cheryl Sandberg's group based on her book called Option B, or Darwin Dave's Dealing with My Grief, which is another podcast for grief. These groups are all on Facebook, and they are a great collection of safe spaces to share your pain. You can post about bad days, you can post about good days, questions about growth, logistical questions about loss, where to find resources. Yeah, it's just a great space to put some of that heartache. Lastly, I want to tell you to seek out stories of other grievers. Whether you're listening to more interviews on the show, or reading books, or watching movies, or going to local storytelling events, whatever. I I want you to see that there are people in the world who have come out of the initial pain of their grief and are still walking with grief in their daily lives. Closure did not happen for them, but growth did. And many of these grievers can tell you that they are happy, fulfilled, and alive, inclusive of their grief. Closure doesn't exist. Closure is an illusion, a very unfortunate illusion. Grief stays with us forever. But we can find ways to walk with it through our lives. You can do this. Please submit your question for the show by leaving a voicemail or texting 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. You can find both of these contacts in the show notes. Next up, we'll chat with Tracy Lewis Stokel about getting divorced, taking time to wallow, and helping other women through her story. Tracy lewis Stokel is an educator, entrepreneur, self-proclaimed empathetic badass, and podcast host of Finding Your Best Self, a podcast about overcoming obstacles to find the best version of yourself in spite of it all. Tracy says, for years, people would tell me that I should write a book about everything. Maybe someday I will, but right now it feels right to talk about it. In my podcast, you can hear me laugh. You can hear me get choked up or angry. It just feels real and raw, and it feels so good." If a tiny handful of women have an easier time than I did because I shared my story, then it makes everything I went through worth it. Finding Your Best Self now on its seventh episode chronicles Tracy's story of surviving divorce and, in her words, turning all of that crappy into happy. Tracy is a mom to two really great humans, two dogs and a bunny, and when she's not working or podcasting, Tracy enjoys playing in her garden, riding her motorcycle, and curling up with a good book. So, Welcome to the show. Coming back, I'm so excited to have you here. As usual, I'm just going to have you jump in with your lost story.
1: I never thought in a million years that anything could ever affect my marriage. We were together for 15 years. We shared two beautiful children, and most importantly, he was my best friend. He was the one person I could go to with anything. We had been friends in high school. We dated all through college, and we got married when he was in the military and spent four years living on the East Coast. We had the perfect marriage, in my opinion, and then suddenly everything changed. He said it was me. He said that I was a bad mother, that I was a worse wife, and that I had control issues and that I was lazy. He said he never really loved me, because how could he possibly, I was such a despicable person, and that he wanted out of our marriage. And then he forced me out of our home a week before Christmas, without so much as a penny to my name. But what he didn't bargain for is that I was never going to leave without my children or that the first weekend that they spent with him after we split, that they would come home and tell me how they had spent the night at daycare and that they thought the daycare lady was going to be their new stepmommy. So the cat was out of the bag. What, what change wasn't really me after all. Although that really realization strangely made me feel better, the worst was yet to come. We would go on to spend two and a half years fighting for custody of those two kids, including a custody evaluation in five days in court, which would include Valentine's Day. I just love that irony. And I can't tell you how soul-crushing it is to sit and listen to the man you love lie about you in a room full of strangers. How completely heart-wrenching it is to hold your babies when they cry every Sunday night because they've come home from being told that mommy is crazy all weekend and that they just wish that mom and dad still loved each other. I would spend those two and a half years fielding harassing text messages in the middle of the night from both him and his girlfriend. And I would wonder how in the world I could have spent 18 years of my life with a man and never know him at all. And I'd wonder if I could ever trust again or ever let anyone else close to me or my kids. And that's kind of my story.
0: That is absolutely incredible. And it sounds like it sounds like you've been weaving the story for a while. How does it feel now to have this kind of set beginning, middle, and maybe end to it? Does it make the picture harder or easier for you or is what it is?
1: So much easier. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, all of all of that took place. That was, you know, eight and a half years ago Since since he put us out of the house and we set out on our own. And those first couple of years were so difficult and I, and I wish I could say that it's better. It's still not better eight and a half years later. He and I don't speak. We still, of course, share these two kids who are now teenagers. but there for me, at least, there is an end to the story. There is an end to that whole grieving process and wondering if you know if there's something wrong with me and you know what I could have done done differently or better, you know, to keep him and keep him in my life and keep him happy. that's all gone. And it's, it's wonderful to have those stages. And, and it's funny, the more I talk about it, the easier, you know, the easier it gets, the the better it's gotten over the years.
0: Absolutely. And tell me what sparked the change in your husband, if anything?
1: You know, I wish I knew at the time I was convinced that he was using drugs. And I know now that that probably wasn't the case. But it was such an incredible change. We, I mean, we had been together for 18 years, and he had never raised his voice to me in 18 years. Like never yelled at me, never even really scolded me or argued with me in 18 years, which I know now is not normal. <laughs> but um, all of a sudden, any time that you know I would even speak to him, he'd be screaming at me, and it took a while to figure out that. You know, that it was, he hadn't just gone crazy and that it wasn't actually something that I had done like he made it sound. There was an influence from the outside that I hadn't seen coming in. And the hardest thing about that was she was a very good friend of mine. She was our children's child care provider. She took care of them during the day. So although they would deny it over and over and over again that there was actually something going on between them in the end, that turned out that was the catalyst that that started all of the craziness
0: when you found out that their relationship was the catalyst for your marriage ending I think I asked this on another interview as well but where was your heart where were you in all of that you know for me
1: it was easier it would it it took so much of the pressure and the blame off of off of me Because all the way up until that moment, it was me. I was a bad mother. I was a terrible wife. You know, he blamed me for the fact that he was overweight and that we didn't have any money. You know, everything that was wrong in his life was my fault. And then all of a sudden, it was, oh, wait, no, maybe it's not me after all. Maybe he just likes her. And I've talked to other women, you know, who have been in the same situation and they're like, yeah, that doesn't make me feel any better. But for me, it did. It was. It's a somewhat normal thing for marriages to fail. I wasn't surprised that my marriage failed. I was surprised that he turned on me, you know, that that despite everything that we had together and the fact that he was my best friend, that he would suddenly start hating me and to have a reason for that and, you know, some sort of justi- justification for that, even if it was just in my mind, made me feel so much better. Sounds like you were
0: comforted by
1: answers. Absolutely. Yep. And that's exactly that's exactly it.
0: That's an interesting statement that you, that you weren't surprised that your marriage failed, but you were surprised that your husband would ever turn on you. Mm-hmm. That's, I've never heard that before. Because <laughs> most people when they get married, they're like, it's going to last forever and what have you. And then the divorce rate is steadily climbing in this country for multiple reasons. not because people don't get along or the people are having more sex or what have you. It's, I think there's a lot of factors as to why it's climbing, but but 50% or more of marriages now don't go to forever. Um, and that's interesting that you kind of acknowledge that reality in your life. And yet the thing that surprised you was the fact that that he turned on you so drastically and so quickly. And I'm curious to know in in this halfway period in between him changing and you actually finding your answers, did you believe any of the stories that he was telling you about yourself? I'm sure I
1: did. I'm sure there was a part of me that you know, was was trying to, possibly maybe even sympathize with him and trying to find some common ground. You know, to to adopt some of what those attitudes were in order to, you know, bring us closer together, but the one thing that I had um, going for me was that I had people to talk to who immediately, it was, you know, the first moment when I said, yeah, he said he wants a divorce. They're like, he's cheating. And I was like, no, he's not cheating. Oh yeah, he's cheating. So, you know, having those people around me to, you know, to bolster me and to support me, um, helped me to kind of think outside of that box that he was trying to put me in, but yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I subscribed to a lot of that, and I think I did for a long time. It pro- I don't think it was until we were actually sitting in a courtroom, and I was listening to some of the things come out of his mouth and hearing how crazy some of his allegations were, that I realized that it was just all crazy. That you know that there wasn't really any truth to any of it. It was just the ramblings of a, you know, of a desperate person and not really anything that I had done wrong. I'm not saying that I have never done anything wrong in my marriage because, you know, sure. certainly yeah. we're all human. But, you know, he, I mean, he had some crazy, crazy accusations and none of it was true.
0: And I love that you mentioned having a support system in all of this. So where, logistically, what happened after he kicked you guys out of the house. Like, where did you go? What did you do? Who did you stay with? Who or what kind of held you up during that time?
1: We live in Minnesota. My family's in Wisconsin. And the first thing that I suggested when he said it was going to be over was, okay, I'm going to take the kids and we're going to Wisconsin. And of course, that was not going to be an option for him at all. And we were going to be, you know, divorcing in Minnesota. So that wasn't going to work out at all. So I immediately started looking for a place to live, but it was it was, you know, Christmas time and I as soon as I knew my marriage was ending, I quit the job that I had because it was really long hours and a lot of hours a week and an attorney had warned me that I wouldn't be able to keep my children if that was the job that I had. And my parents, who are amazing human beings if not for them, I really believe that I would have been living in a box back then stepped forward and said that they would do whatever it takes, that we were going to fight, that I was not going to lose my kids. And they put up the security deposit for this um, really terrible little rental house that we lived in for the first six months. My kids called it the poopy brown house because it was brown. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. How old? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how old were they?
1: They the were, um, what were they? Uh, five and seven then.
0: The poopy the brown, poopy brown house. <laughs>
1: house. Yeah, it was this a terrible, terrible brown color, and it was just not very nice. So it was poopy. And, yep, we lived in the poopy brown house for six months after that. I moved as far as I could get away from him while still being in the same school district. That was my, like, little bit of justice. Like, I'll get as far away from you as I can, which, you know, brought us, like, 15 miles away. <laughs> it
0: wasn't very far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in the grand scheme of things, um, it... It can distance can mean all the space in the world. It goes from being in the same house to being in the same town, but still, um, it's really important. I think what I'm hearing from you too is that it was really important, not just because he kicked you out, but for your well being to carve out a space that was exclusively yours and exclusively your kids, without his energy kind of interfering in there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, he did suggest that we could all live in the same house as friends. And that wasn't going to happen. So the poopy brown house became a reality.
0: I want to use the phrase mothering instincts. What kind of protective natures or proactive measures did you take on behalf of your kids during all this?
1: I, I think I probably went into full mama bear mode. You know, my the biggest thing was that I've always, even when they were little like that, I've always been completely honest with my kids that, you know, I, I don't believe in, in, you know, you don't tell them that the shots won't hurt. You tell them that they will hurt, but only for a minute. You know, you give them the, the as much of the real story as is age appropriate for them. And Gary at that time, which is not his real name, by the way, um, did not support me telling the children anything. He didn't want me talking to my family or his family or any of our friends about any of that but I sat down with them as soon as I knew that it was, you know, a definite thing that we were definitely going to be moving and explained to them and really did my due diligence. And, you know, I, I tell my friends too that are going through this. You tell your children one million times that this is not their fault. That, you know, sometimes mommies and daddies just stop loving each other and they decide not to live together. And that doesn't mean that they don't love you and really, really worked so hard. To ingrain that in them. And I think even to this day, you know, it's been eight and a half years, they still know and, you know, in their hearts that we both love them. Um, and they still at times, you know, my daughter still says she wants us together, which, you know, obviously now is never, ever going to happen. But that was my biggest priorities to try to keep them whole. Like this was going to be the worst thing that ever happened to them, you know, at least to date. And their mental health and their, you know, emotional well-being was my first priority. And and even to the point where I really, those first six months, put on a show for them, made sure that everything was perfect during their waking hours. And then, you know, I could put them to bed and go, you know, cry in the shower if I needed to. But I didn't do it in front of them. And I made sure that their lives were as normal as I could.
0: There's a, a grief myth that I talk about on... I believe it's episode five of the podcast. Well, there's a couple of them. One is be strong for others. And the other one is uh, don't cry or don't feel bad. And it sounds like in a way you were using some of those to cope. But then conversely, you were not keeping this situation a secret from your kids. So I think I feel like there had to be some kind of balance there. But was there ever a day or a week or a time period when all of you just got together and just... Cried about the fact that this was awful and it was happening to all of you? I think
1: we did that on a regular basis, really. They had a really hard time with leaving me every other weekend to go and spend time with him. And he really immediately moved in with her, despite the fact that she was also married at the time. So they were, you know, just immersed in this relationship right from the very, very beginning, from literally from a week after the time we moved out. And they, Did not speak well of me. You know, they, they, and to this day, they don't say nice things about me to my children. And, you know, to the contrary, they say some pretty horrendous things about me to my kids. And in those early days, they would come home on Sundays after a weekend away and we would sit on the couch in this big lump of, you know, mom and two kids and all of us just cry for an hour or two or three until we had it out of our systems. And then we'd, you know, make macaroni and cheese and try to get on with the evening. But, it, that was really our ritual. I, we called it detox time. Every two weeks they'd come home, oh, they'd g- barely get in the door and start, you know, start crying about something they heard or something they were told and and we'd just sit and cry it out. And it's you know, my 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 daughter actually f- uh, coined the phrase calling me an empathetic badass because I can't not cry if she cries. So you know, that they would walk in the door and start to cry. And of course, naturally, I'd be crying. And, you know, they'd be saying, why are you crying? And I go, I don't know. Why are you crying? <laughs> and we'd all just be <laughs> in a little puddle of Kleenex and tears.
0: Oh, that's that's a really beautiful picture, actually. And I feel like we should all be sharing more more emotions and more struggles with our kids. Because if they never see us cry, they, they think that it's not okay that they're crying or there's something wrong with them, that they can't suck it up and, and move on. So I think that's so beautiful. And you guys even came up, with a name for it. um, I want to know what this time period kind of in between was like with things like living in the poopy brown house and going to court and kind of re I'm having this image of like fumbling in the dark. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you energetically and emotionally and mentally? Like what was the story that you were telling yourself about your life?
1: Well, the biggest story that I told myself was that That if I could be so wrong about him, you know, if we'd known each other for 20 plus years, we'd been, you know, dating for 18 years, married for 15. If I could be so wrong, then obviously what I thought I had never existed. And there's not really any point being upset about losing something that you never had in the first place. And that was kind of my my mantra that, you know, like I p- clearly had fabricated a lot of what I thought there was in my head. And there was, you know, like no use crying over spilled milk, my mom would say, but that's really the, the feeling that I had. So I basically set forth from the minute we moved out December 30th. Um, by January 2nd, I was starting to get my head back on straight a little bit. And I decided that he had not wanted me to go back to school for years. We'd kind of thought about it. I had been accepted to law school at one point and was told I couldn't go. And I just decided that I was going back to school. And that was what I totally dumped myself into. So January 2nd, I called the school. I was sitting in class January 6th and, you know, a year later was starting a new career in the medical field, something I had not even thought of before that time. But having that to fill all the time when the kids, you know, were were with their dad or were at school so that I wasn't constantly thinking was, you know, one of the saving graces for me.
0: Did you grieve for the life that you had, for the truth that you did have for the person that you
1: were? Yeah, I definitely grieved. And you know, I think it's funny that people would always or people will always tell you, you know, they'll put limits on, you know, how long it should take you to get over something. And, you know, mm-hmm, some of mm-hmm. my friends were saying, you know, oh, come on, get back on the horse. You need to go on a date and whatever. And others were like, no, take your time, you know, give yourself six months. And I really was bothered by the fact that other people had opinions about how long it should take me. You know, like this is this is my thing. But I basically gave myself 30 days. And I said, "Okay, you can have 30 days to wallow and wallow your little heart out." And I did. I did some epic wallowing. It was it was (laughs) quite amazing. I I love that phrase. (laughs) I could stay. I would stay in my pajamas all day, eat cereal in my bed, watch you know soap operas all day, and then a half an hour before the kids were going to get home and get off the bus, I would take a shower and put on makeup and have my hair done and be ready at the door when they got there, so that they didn't know that I was wallowing and. The weekends when they were gone, I, you know, would stay in my pajamas all weekend, maybe not shower, you know, eat pizza rolls or, you know, like whatever it was I wanted to do. And I just let myself enjoy, for lack of a better word, every moment of that. Just cry when I want to and read a sad book, whatever, and just wallow in it. On the 30th day, I was done wallowing. So on the 30th day, I went on a date. Wow. Yeah. And it was terrible. It was the worst idea I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. Why is that? Just the one thing. Why was it terrible? Cause I was totally uh-huh. mentally prepared for that. But it was the thing that I feared the most. I was 36 years old and I didn't want to be single and I didn't want to date and certainly didn't want to try online dating, which was how I met this person that I went out with. And he was very sweet. We had a really good time and I got that behind me and once i had that you know okay my 30 days is over there's no more wallowing first dates behind me now it's time to go forward and that was my wow my my
0: condition uh, who, who taught you how to do that in terms of setting time to really acknowledge your feelings and then setting time frames to have these goals for yourself because this is not the first time i'm hearing this as a trend in in interviews but this is the that's that's a new idea for me
1: you know i I don't know. My, my family is not good about feeling things or talk about their feelings. So I really, I really don't know. The only thing that I can say is that I'm a planner. (laughs) And for (laughs) me, in order to feel like I have some control over my life, there has to be a plan. So I can't look at you know, the next 40 years of my life is this vast open time when I'm going to feel bad about this thing that happened to me. I've got to put a deadline on it. You know, okay, so the deadline for feeling bad is 30 days from now after that, you're feeling better. And, you know, I guess I don't remember now if I did feel lots better or not, but that was the time I allowed myself.
0: I just think that's such a cool tip. And I just love that that's the gift that you chose to give yourself. In this time period. Um, I'm curious if there was a an event or a book or a person or like an idea that really called you to step back into your life again to take those classes or to, to get a new space for you and your kids like how, what was your coming back process? Like. For me, it was a song.
1: I had just had this massive confrontation with my husband because he had actually confessed that to the affair. And I had decided to call her husband and let him know that I had had this confession. Everything imploded. Her husband called her, she called him, then he was super mad at me because she was really mad at him. And it was my lowest low point. Like, I really had thought that her husband would be like an ally to me maybe we'd even like break them up and get them back like that was kind of probably my mindset at that point point. and it was the first time that I ever thought that maybe he was right about me and maybe you know maybe everybody would be better off if I went away or whatever that was and I had gone to Target to buy some things for the poopy brown house to try to make it <laughs> a little homier and Jewel had just put out a new CD And I couldn't afford it. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. But for whatever reason, I grabbed that CD and threw it in the cart. And even at checkout, I almost put it back. And you know, like I can't afford to spend you know nine dollars on a in music for myself. But I bought it. And I got in the car and tore the CD open and I put it in. And I was driving home to the Poopy Brown House, just still sobbing because of the confrontation that I had had on the phone. And this song comes on. And it's perfectly clear, which is the the title of the album. But she says, five years worth of kisses are packed in your bags. This tiny moment fits all the big things we ever had. And I can't quite pinpoint when it left or what for. But love always steps lightly away from the door. And she, she goes on to say, please don't open your mouth, my dear. I can read all the signs. I can take this from here. There's no need to explain. It's perfectly clear. So try not to think too much. It only just makes me mad. I spent half my life loving you, and think of all the love that I could have had. And it was in that moment that I realized that I was not alone in this nightmare. There are songs about this, and that means thousands of women have gone through this, and I'm not alone. And I didn't know then that I would eventually be moved to share this story and try to make sure that other women don't feel alone in what they're going through, but that was really, that was the the thing that started everything then the, started me talking about it and started me reaching out to other women that I knew were going through similar things and saying hey you know if you just need someone to hold your hand I'm here cuz you know I've I've been there and I know how this feels and I still, I still listen to it, and it still connects with me at the same level that it did, you know, eight and a half years ago.
0: You're not the only person I know who has had Jewel as a very significant influence in their story. She's amazing. I, I just love it so much, and I get chills when you're reading the lyrics, um, because I, I personally have not heard that specific Jewel song before, and that's just incredible. And it does music can take us to this whole other level of. I I am not alone. It's exactly like you said. Talk to me about how your life looks different today versus where you were eight and a half years ago, the day you heard the news.
1: Well, everything's different, and it's funny because probably, uh, probably three, four months after we separated. Um, he had come to pick up the kids and I was getting ready for a date and was actually going on an actual date with an actual person that I actually liked that time. And he gave me the look, you know, like the up-down, like gave me, look me over and didn't say anything, but gave me this look. And I made some comment to him. And back then we still actually did talk sometimes. We don't at all now. But, um, and I said something about, when are you ever going to apologize to me? And he says, apologize to you. You should be thanking me and there was a minute where i felt like he had slapped me but then i realized i should be thanking him and and he goes he goes i've never seen you so happy and there's just this total realization that i you know like they say you live up to or down to the level of the person that you're with and he was a very unhappy person and i thought that we were happy but i was happy to his level of happy and now I get to be happy to my own level, if that makes any sense. That you know, like this, and it's much—it's a much higher level than what, mm-hmm, what he lives mm-hmm. at. So I mean, yeah, I mean, I went and started a new career in in healthcare where I get to help people. You know, I've had a you know some really meaningful relationships that didn't work out, but that I learned things from. That you know, I walked away from feeling like I was better for the experience. My kids are now 17 and 14, and they're awesome human beings and um and in february we actually bought the house that he put us out of eight and a half years ago
0: wow what's that like for you
1: (laughs) it's amazing uh and you know people when i tell people the story they i get you know completely different reactions but we just were we had, had purchased a house a few years ago when it just didn't feel right to us and all three of us just kind of felt that it just wasn't really what we wanted and we started looking for something else And this house was on the market and I, you know, I didn't know if I could afford it. I didn't know if we wanted it, but I decided to bring the kids here and just take a walk through and we did. And it's just amazing just to be, you know, we've come full circle. We've lived through the worst of all of, you know, all of that experience. And to be right back here, kind of where we started, but only with the good this time is, it's just amazing. I pinch myself almost every day, And, you know, I'm like, I can't believe I live here, that this is mine. And it's never, no one's ever going to be able to take it away from us this time. It's ours. And I think that was one of the biggest injustices for all three of us is that not only did we lose this family that we thought, you know, was forever for all of us, but we had our home ripped away from us too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we'd had one thing to hold on to. It, that might have made it easier, but instead we had, you know, a poopy brown house with spiders in the ceiling and a crazy landlord. And now we're back here, and it's like none of that ever happened. It just—it's awesome. I love it.
0: Wow, the same but different.
1: And it's very different. The people that lived here in the mean, in, you know, in the meantime, they painted everything. The floors are different, but it still has the same feeling. It still feels like home, and it feels safe, and it's, you know, it's perfect.
0: That's awesome for you guys and that makes me so happy and I've heard the dog in the background and I just love how homey (laughs) even that feels coming from you now. I want to know, there are a lot of people who would not classify divorce as a loss because no one is actually dying, quote-unquote. Tell me what you would say to argue against that. We were
1: court-ordered to attend a Parents Forever class as part of our divorce process and in one of the first classes, they asked us to, to describe our, you know, soon-to-be ex-spouse. And, you know, people would say, you know, oh, he's a terrible person, he's a narcissist, you know, she's crazy, whatever. And when they got to me, and I, I didn't even know I was thinking the words, and I said, my husband died. And everybody gasps and looks at me, and I'm like, no, I'm like, he's actually still alive. But the person that I thought he was died. And I just, you know, and I and I felt like that, you know. I've, and you, I've read studies where they talk about how people would rather their spouse die than go through a divorce. That it's not, you know, they say that it's not as, you know, long term, not as difficult a grieving process. Which I'm not sure that I believe. But that was exactly how I felt. My life died. Everything that I thought I had, and you know, my home and my future, and I lost a whole. Group of of family members. His family, you know, had to rally behind him because there was going to be a world war. And I still am in touch with a couple of them, but he had three younger brothers that were my little brothers. They were seven, his youngest, two youngest brothers were seven and eight when we started dating. So they didn't remember a time that I wasn't in their life. And now they're suddenly not in my life. And I mean, the friends that feel like they have to choose between you. So they decide not to, and they just disappear. It's, it's very loss ridden for, for a term, you know, there's, I I lost everything in that time other than my two kids. And, you know, I had my family. That was, that was all I had. I had to give up a job that I enjoyed and a home that I loved and neighbors that I adored. And, and eventually now I'm I'm friends again with some of those same people that we were friends with. But there was a long time where not only were they afraid to get caught in the middle, but the fact that we were really happy and suddenly not together scared the crap out of them. Yeah. They if they felt like if, you know, if my marriage could fail, then there was, you know, they were in trouble too. And so they, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. So yeah, I mean, it's that's definitely a loss. You know, and I would say now that you know, I've gained more than I've lost, but for four years, five years, that was not the case.
0: What would you tell yourself in the midst of those four or five years? How would you go about holding your own hand if you could write a letter back to that person?
1: Mm, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I think I would just tell her that she's going to be okay. I, you know, I have a friend um, that a year ago... Her husband called her up on the phone. And said she was a terrible person. He didn't want to be with her anymore. They're getting divorced. And his reason for telling her that he was through with her was that she was a breast cancer survivor, and that she was different after having breast cancer. Wow. And which just you know, I I, I feel the rage every time I even even think about it. And the first thing I said to her was, you know, you're going to be okay, and you'll be happier eventually, like, just trust me that you're going to come through this and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be happier in the end. And she now, her divorce is final and she's just starting to see, you know, get a little taste and saying, okay, yep, I'm starting to see what you, you know, what you said. I'm starting to realize that it's going to be okay. But yeah, I mean, if, if somebody would have told me, you know, eight years ago that I was going to survive, I would have been grateful. Because I didn't even know that I was gonna, going to be able to keep breathing in and out every day.
0: I know you've got a podcast of your own where you talk about being divorced, and it's got a couple uh, seasons coming. So I'd love to be enlightened about the work that you're doing now and how it reflects where you are in your life right now.
1: So we just launched in May, and season one of the podcast, uh, Finding Your Best Self, is about my story and my divorce and about cheating and about um, you know how to be supportive to your kids during that time and all of the things. And then what I'm hoping for season two is that I will get some good stories from others and some good questions and things that we can bring experts in to address, because I am no expert. I say it in my disclaimer. I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. But to really just dig into the kinds of things that people are afraid to talk about. That there's, you know, just like you, grief is something that needs to be talked through. And everybody has a thing, whether it's being sexually assaulted or, um, you know, losing a, a big, important corporate job or whatever that might be. That's something that we need to learn to cope with. And I feel like through talking about it and through hearing others talk about their things, and that's kind of my goal for the ongoing seasons of the podcast.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on coming back today and i'm so excited to have connected with another podcaster out there who is bringing light to the subject of grief and to the subject of loss and and just walking other people through it in a similar way so thank you for being here tracy thank you for having me i really enjoyed it so that's all for this episode of coming back thank you to tracy lewis Stokel, host of the finding your best self podcast for joining us on the show today Tracy came back by giving herself 30 days of epic wallowing and facing her fear of dating right at the end of it, going to school for herself, and listening to Jewel's song titled Perfectly Clear. You can check out Tracy's work at findingyourbestself.com or by searching Finding Your Best Self wherever you listen to podcasts. Please call or write in with your thoughts on grief and the five love languages by September 20th. 312-725-3043 or shelby at shelbyforsythia.com you can join me tomorrow september 7th on facebook live at one o'clock chicago time we'll talk about all the phrases we use to intellectualize grief please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through always and forever thank you thank you to mr Addie goldstein who composed our theme music you can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at GriefGuide Shelby for or simply shelbyforcia.com. To leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforcia.com subject line podcast. As always, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you. I see you. I am so proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.